0: when i really seen high-end food. Do you need an apprenticeship to be a chef? Absolutely not. You don't just go to a Michelin our restaurant on a Tuesday for no reason. I, I have a lot of people now working in the group. You know, we, we're over 200 employees. Chef Table Podcast by Hotel and Restaurant
1: Times. Hello and welcome back to episode 3 of the Chef Table Podcast. In this episode, we speak to Oliver Dunn. Oliver has an extensive career here in Ireland and also has worked abroad, working for the likes of Ramsay and Bono, before he achieved his own success with a Michelin Star. He founded Oliver Dunn Restaurants and has eight successful restaurants under his belt. We talked to Oliver about his career, success to date, problems facing the industry and his family life. All the Chef Table episodes can be found at our website hotelandrestauranttimes.ie forward slash podcasts, as well as on Spotify and YouTube at Hotel and Restaurant Times Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Nespresso Professional, bringing the exceptional Nespresso Coffee offering to hotels and restaurants. Oliver Dunn of Bon Appetit and many other restaurants have you, Oliver
0: um seven so um bon appetit being the first and uh i've got um yeah seven more uh one under the malahide uh, bon appetit being a malahide one under malahide ribeye steakhouse then i've got one in galway a beef and lobster in galway another beef and lobster in dublin city um cleaver east in dublin city do the food and beverage in the clarence hotel um and then also a pink restaurant in south william street Donnybrook. Um, gastro pub, and then out in County Loud we have a restaurant called Bryanstown Social
1: right right and this all started as a result of you deciding that you want to be a chef
0: yeah this this all started um, <laughs> deciding I want to be a chef even that's kind of <laughs> funny um, yeah I, I just became a chef uh, I, I never decided to be a chef it, it just kind of happened in life why these things happen, I, I don't know, as a fate as it wasn't meant to be. Um I, I question that now now that I'm not cooking effectively anymore, I always question, you know, mm-hmm. like because uh, at the time, I suppose when I was cooking, I absolutely adored food, loved every second of it, and the chef, and I was going to be a chef until I was one hundred years old you know mm. and now that obviously the restaurant the group is big enough now i 'm not in the kitchen cooking on a daily basis, so I now question you know that kind of thing like did i ever want to be a chef or it was just uh, was it just a difficult uh, I liked challenge and, and I liked how hard it was, and I liked how black and white it was, and how mm. that 's right and that 's wrong, and that 's better than that, mm. it's very clear and very evident mm. to see you know and I like aspect of it um so it was very easy tool for me to improve daily and to push daily and to become better daily and i think that was really the the gras it was not so much that now in hindsight it wasn't so much the actual enjoyment out of cooking it was just the enjoyment out of being better i think that's what i think now you know i'm 45 now like maybe ask me when i'm 50 and i might have a different view but um
1: yeah it was an interesting and when you you left school at what age
0: uh left school done my leaving cert uh, pretty young to be honest when I done my leaving cert I literally just was 16 um so I was obviously a little shit when I was a baby my mother must have sent me to school when I was one <laughs> um, so I, I done my leave and then I left and my parents actually picked um a college course well a post-leaving cert course because I was too immature and I didn't have any intention of going to college um it wasn't part of my my future it was never even a conversation so I done a post-leaving cert course in business and computer management um Done that for a year. And then I went out working, um, not cooking, just in the working world in various different jobs.
1: So, um, Can you remember yeah. your first job? Because you got paid.
0: A full-time job. Yeah. yeah, my first full-time job was at a company called Manly Engineering. And it was right. an engineering firm out in Ashburn. And I was an apprentice fitter-turner uh, specialising in uh, steel fabrication. So right. uh, chrome plating and steel fabrication. So that was what it was this this company seemed to specialize and that. that was most of their job um big acid tanks and and uh conduction rods and um uh, yeah it was kind of a, it was, was straight out still I was very young you know um so that was my first ever paid job I was getting 64 punts a week uh after tax about 61 um and that was it that was that was my very first job yeah I was 18 and used to get collected by a you know by a minivan um on the Ballymoon Road um, would come up and collect me and there'd be like 10 fellas 10 men like, like fully grown men I was 18 these lads were in my eyes were 100 you know at that yeah. age and they were all working in different factories in, out in Ashbourne and I used to get the bus out every morning like yeah this minivan used to collect me for whatever it was but, like a hopper yeah, type thing. yeah yeah just yeah. pull up and I'd stand there freezing cold you'd pull in and it was a, yeah it was weird it was an education and a an education. The, and the lunchbox a lunchbox yeah it was a, but it was definitely a boy with men you know I was the youngest boy right 15 years I'd say I, they were working at a different factory to me I was mm-hmm. in a, this the engineering it was just how did I get there and back I don't even mm-hmm. know who organised that I'm sure it was my parents I, I don't yeah. know yeah. <laughs> that was the first paid job yeah right. that I've, way away from cooking
1: yeah yeah I was going to say there. some somewhat <laughs> some away from it so when did you first I suppose embrace the culinary arts Um, I I was part time during second school part
0: time um, working in a pizza restaurant the independent pizza and in pondra and then um i was offered a job as a commie chef um after so after i left manny engineering um i went i was in, into clubbing night clubbing, and i was you know told i was a cool kid as everyone does when you're that age so yeah. i was jumping around the city center going from raves to raves and <laughs> working i wanted to work in all these fashion shops so I, I got the jobs in clothes shops in town um and i hated it and then i was offered a job as um, a commie chef at the gotham cafe and um, I came across Nigel Teague, who was the head chef there, and I was working in the pasta kitchen. So um, there was the Gotham Cafe has a pizza restaurant and then there's also a back kitchen where all the regular food, everything bar pizzas is made. Ooh. I was in that. So I was with Nigel. Nigel's a very passionate English head chef, um, loved food and he kinda of took me under his wing. And that was when I I worked with Nigel's nearly every shift. Um side so 22 was in the kitchen. Um, so I used to do the shifts with him. Um,
1: Nespresso Professional brings the exceptional Nespresso Coffee offering to hotels and restaurants that demonstrate a commitment to excellence. Nespresso Coffee is made using the finest beans sourced from renowned coffee-growing territories worldwide. Offering a range of coffees to satisfy discerning palates and complement dining experiences, the Nespresso Professional coffee machine delivers consistently exceptional coffee drinks, cup after cup.
0: did he like me or was it just the weakest link and he took me under his arm or to, to basically because maybe the sous chef didn't want to work me I don't know again hindsight you know yeah. um, I, I actually do you know I know how restaurants work now so the chances were the head chef said listen leave your man with me I'll, I'll sort him out you know I reckon that's what it was more so than I was good um, but anyway I worked with Nigel um, for maybe a year and a half and then um, there he moved on then and he took me with him to uh, the hotel he went to the Brooks Hotel to open the Brooks right. Hotel on Jury Street
1: so at the time when you were working with him would you have had a good experience. Experience, you say of, of the different f- f- vegetables, not that would you've known what stuff was. Would you have a good idea if it no, was? No, no,
0: no. I, I was clueless. It was. It was never. Um I just took the job
1: because it was better than what I was doing is it true you'd yourself yourself a few times when it came to veg for you yeah stuff?
0: yeah I I'd, no, I'd didn't have any interest uh, right. in it it was just as I said to you it was, uh, it was actually the job was handy because it was right across the road from the system nightclub and Anne Street Ooh. where I used to go at 5 in the morning and then I'd sit in the steps waiting to let in at 7 in the morning and work so that was one of the factors behind it but uh, no I didn't, I didn't uh, have a passion for food Ooh. it was just uh, yeah I just kind of I don't know I just, I just liked the structure I like the structure. I like the way that you had to be ready at a certain time of day to prep. You had a before and after. It was very clean. You, sort of do, you go home with great satisfaction because you've achieved something. You, you've, every day you come in, you've, you know your goals before you start every day. And it's not like a different job where like an office job, like my job now is, I don't have to finish my goals on a daily basis. So I can let my goals today carry on to tomorrow and the next day and the next day. I don't have, but in the restaurant world, you can't do that. When you're in a kitchen, you have to be ready for lunch service. If you're not ready for lunch service, it's just been an absolute disaster, failure. You just, you know, people won't be served food. So you have to be ready. That's, that's taken away from you. So you're ready in time. And then you have to structure of the day. Then you have to rush to the lunch service. Then you have to clean down. There's all kind of little tick boxes throughout oh, the day. Yeah. So it's very rewarding in that re- regard. That's what I think it is. That's what sort of got me into it. How you know? what
1: age were you then at that stage? Were, you know, um, changes, were
0: you? No, it would have been earlier. It would have been about 19. 19, nice. yeah, with Nigel. Um... Yeah definitely 19 yeah
1: right and he would have given me the fundamentals of of the service and all, all that things.
0: yeah he gave me the whole uh, ins and outs of it and um just little things like he would tell me stories he'd come in he was just so passionate it just i just i never knew passion around food i didn't come from a food background um i didn't like food i didn't eat any vegetables till i was in my 20s um but he would tell me about dreams he was having about swimming and bats of broccoli and like <laughs> crazy shit you know yeah, yeah. i remember one day he, we ran out of mayonnaise and he told me i said oh we've no mayonnaise you know making caesar dressing Ooh. um and he said oh, don't worry about it i'll make it i my mind was blown like what do you mean right. you can make it how can you make uh, mayonnaise yeah. you know so there's just so much to learn in field that uh, yeah it, it can be captivating can mm-hmm. be captivating so uh that's what it was i was with him and then um, he moved on again after brooks hotel he got me a job in peacock alley with conrad gallard mm-hmm. uh the michelin star restaurant and that's when i um really seen high-end food and uh i realized again god there's another step up and there's another step up on another level mm-hmm. so you know i was there for maybe six weeks i think mm-hmm. um but Jesus, it was a world away from what I had seen before that. You know, I didn't know food could be that, whatever that was. You know, mm-hmm. people say art. I don't think food's art. I don't like that phrase, but you get what I mean when I say that. It was just, it was just different. Mm-hmm. It was just different. So that's when I got kind of like, God, I like, I like that. You know,
1: you got bitten by the bug.
0: Yeah. Um, i always wanted to be the best you know i I, i've sporting i've always been sporting and i've always wanted to win so i'm very competitive Mm. um still to this day i'm competitive that's what it really is that's what drives me so i didn't like the idea of working in a a restaurant serving Mm. average food when there was restaurants out there serving much much better food so i wanted to be the best so um I sort of seeked out that then after that, I suppose, you know, Mm. Um, again, hindsight, looking back, that's what I seeked out, that's why I moved to London, Um, I moved to London just my 21st, just after that, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to work in the best restaurants, and I went to the best restaurants, I started off in one stars, I went over, I was with Gary Rhodes first, and one Michelin star, I done that, and then after there then, um, I spent nearly two years with him worked my way up to the kitchen there and I was, as I said I moved over 21 I was 23 then I went to Gordon Ramsay's Royal Hospital Road which Gordon was the best chef in the UK at the time now he had only two stars he was going for his third star but he was the one everyone was talking about you know it used to be Marco Pierre White there was a couple of lads Pierre Kaufman uh, Nico Landis this is going back when all the old three star lads but most of them are coming to the end of their careers Marco had kind of just given up his three stars and um, Gordon was the next was the top dog so um I went to work for Gordon. So, yeah, so I always seeked out the best, you know. Mm. So, um, I done that for maybe six or seven months um, and came back to Ireland. It just was a kitchen that just didn't suit me, you know.
1: Mm. Well, was it, Was it the pressure or was it being away from home or...
0: But at that stage, I was uh, two and a half years away from home. Um, it wasn't away from home, mm. no, and it wasn't the pressure either. Mm. It was just, it was the first time I'd actually ever went to a restaurant that I just, I just didn't enjoy it. Mm. I didn't enjoy it. Yes, the food on the place was was stunning, it was absolutely stunning. Um, in hindsight, you know, was it the best restaurant I ever worked in? No, I don't think it was, but it, accolades claim it is, but, but, mm. but certainly I didn't get the most out of it. But I just didn't enjoy the way they worked, the way they operated. Um... I don't know. Like, I don't want to say I. I was. Uh, it just didn't sit with you. Yeah, like you know, what well, was was? I don't want to say I was. I was too smart for it. Because I don't, I'm not saying Ooh. I'm smart, but I just didn't put up with the bullshit. Um, and there was a lot of it, like you know, like an awful lot of it. You had to do an awful lot of completely illogical stuff. That's a better way of saying it. And I'm a very logical thinker, Ooh. so. Um, you, you you have to wipe your benches down a certain direction, like you can't just wipe the bench down. You have to wipe from left to right or right to left, whatever it was at the time. It's just crazy stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And it's just like well, this doesn't make any sense. That's yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. Like it was just foolish, like you know. Um, you could chop before making olive tapenade like i have to chop the olives up and you would chop before you make the tapanat. and you'd be like well, what's the point because that was the right way to do things now i get that logic you know of this is the correct way you do everything correctly but not if it doesn't make any sense you don't Ooh. that's just Ooh. foolish so there's an awful lot of that in it and again um maybe i didn't understand the bigger picture at the time but i don't think i think i did understand the bigger picture it was just there's an awful lot of bullshit like you did position the if you're making stocks for example you're making stock meaning gravy for the, for, for the listeners if you're making stock you have to roast off bones and people might be aware of that like in Gordon Ramsay you have to put the bones in the tray before you went to the oven in a certain formation and I just thought that was complete and utter bullshit you know and it is and I'm telling you now, 25 years later or whatever it is, 20 something years, 20 years later, that it is absolute bullshit. And I, I won well, my own Michelin star. I'm not coming from a background of I'm naive and clueless. I'm not. It's just nonsense. So, um, so anyway, that was my, my time there. Still, as I said, yeah, I, I worked a long time there. And also I was, I was put onto the pastry section, which didn't suit me um, because I knew the process of the kitchen you had to do a year or two years in every section. I wanted to be like all young chefs. I wanted to cook the main courses because the main courses was considered the pinnacle. Mm. And again, now I know that's not the case. But at the time, when you're young and twenty-three, twenty-four years of age, you know you're you're full of testosterone, and mm-hmm. you, you just you want to be top dog. You know, yeah. so uh, I didn't have the patience dying around. You know, so
1: I come back to Dublin. And where did you start? Where did you go back to?
0: I come back and I took a job in the Clarence Hotel. Um, coincidentally where I now have the food franchise um, um, and it was a, I came back to a chef because there was a chef there called Anthony Eli and Anthony Eli was the head chef of a two Michelin star restaurant in London called The Square so he just came from the UK, an English guy, and he took over the, the Clarence Hotel, the Tea Rooms restaurant. And the Tea Rooms restaurant at the time had a very good reputation. And he took and when I, when I came back, for me it was kind of like a little bit of London back in Dublin, you know. So oh. um I seeked him out and I went in a sous chef in the Clarence right.
1: Hotel. And this is owned at the time by Bono.
0: This is owned, yeah, by uh Bono, um the Edge and um Patty McKillen Senior. Oh. Yeah. Right.
1: And how did you find working with the rock stars?
0: Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, it was kind of nice. Um, Bono used to come in, um, which, was, which was a really nice touch. Like at that stage, Bono was in quite often. Um, nowadays, not so much. Like I haven't laid eyes on him in years, uh, maybe three years. Um, but yeah, he used to go. And Christmas Eve was a lovely touch. That Bono used to come in to the Clarence Hotel every Christmas Eve to have drinks with the staff. And I remember in the Auckland Bar on Christmas Eve sitting there, and it was Bono in with all the staff, all the receptionists, all the kitchen staff, the rest, all the hotel staff, the the, the maids, and the chambermaids, and we used to all and he'd he bring us all into the bar and buy everyone a drink and sip with us. And you you think back, like that was a lovely touch. That was a nice, nice thing to do, you know. Um, I remember him telling stories of some lad out of ACDC. I don't know his name, but he. Whatever his real name is and what you call him, if you mm. called him the wrong name, he would give you a punch in the face or something. He'd be the story, yeah. He'd be sitting there and all listening to it mm-hmm. all. You know, so that was a lovely touch. You know, so um, that was basically the only interactions other than that it was just life as normal in the kitchens.
1: Yeah, but you said um, I seem to recall you t- telling me that he was very much give you a free hand, like you know, essentially New York. To look at
0: menus, not that, that was that. It? Oh well, no 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 no! That, that was that was when I was starting out. Um, so when I initially had the meeting, yeah. So I initially had the meeting about um, will, will my interest in taking over the lease of the Clarend or the Tea Rooms restaurant. Um, So I had a meeting upstairs um, in in the meeting rooms in the Clarence Hotel, Mm -hmm. and I I was didn't know who I was meeting. To be honest, I didn't expect a meeting, but it was Bono, it was the Edge, it was Paddy McKillen Senior, it was the hotel management. And I walked in, God, you know, Ooh. but at that stage I was also a bit baldy, you know, right. uh, I had my Michelin star here at Bon Appetit for a good few years, hence the reason I suppose they contacted me in the first place, you know, mm-hmm. to come in, have a chat, the Clarence Hotel or the Tea Rooms restaurant was dying at this stage, it wasn't doing very well, um, it, it's old reputation had long gone, this was back in 2013 maybe mm-hmm. or fourteen. Um, so when I went upstairs to meet them um, yeah they had the ideas of they wanted a pizzeria uh, they wanted to open a pizzeria you know and because of like there's loads of pizzerias over in LA like the are on a high end fancy ones mozza and all these places uh, I had very different opinions um, and it transpires that they liked that they liked the fact that I wasn't Star struck. Um, I know I knew what I wanted to do, I knew what I was only willing to do. I wasn't willing to do pizzas so at that stage, I was very much so a fine dining, high end kind of chef. Um, I, I knew where the, the Cleaver East, where the back door of the Clarence Hotel Ooh. is, um, is on East Essex Street. And I know there's no one down that road, so I um I told them what I wanted to do, which is tasting plates. Um, and uh, they were kind of a bit put back by it i think but equally i heard the next day when they rang they they uh, i've heard by the manager michael he said like that they really liked the fact that i stood my ground and i knew what i wanted to do and and hence the reason i I, they offered me the lease so Mm. that's how i got it yeah and it was the right decision. Mm. It was the right decision not to do pizzas, you know, um, because Cleaver East flew from the start, you know, and that was uh the whole tasting plate concept, like so. And that was at the time, I believe, the first. I don't believe I know that was the first kind of small plate restaurant in Ireland. And I got that idea back to your story because when I was in conversation, they were telling me about all places in LA mm. to have a look. So I said, oh, "I'd be interested to go." they said, "You should go over." So. I, they paid for me to fly over to LA. So I went over on my own and I went around LA for three or four days eating in various restaurants. They gave me loads, recommended loads of me to go to and I went over and had a look. And that's where I got the idea from. Travel is the best thing in the world when it comes mm-hmm. to hospitality. If you don't travel in hospitality, you're just, you're just blind. You have you're blinkers on. You're, you're not aware of what's going on in the world. So um, the more you eat out, the more you experience, and not just really the food, just the whole environment of restaurants, mm-hmm. um, the better. So that was where the idea came from. So Clebury's right. flew from day one, yeah.
1: And was it was probably one of the du- du- Dublin's most successful restaurants for by a long shot?
0: Um yeah, I would say so. We were we were fully booked. Um God, we were fully booked for a long, long time. Um, every day of the week it was it was a great success. Um So maybe within a very short period of time, like it kind of washed its face Um, and and Cleaver East gave me great confidence because Cleaver East was kind of also a a change in my life from where up until that point, I I always knew I wasn't a Michelin star guy, if that makes sense. Yes, I had a Michelin star restaurant, but it's not the I do like going to Michelin star restaurants. Of course I do. And I, I really admire what it takes to get a Michelin star and the hard work and effort that's put into it. The years the 10 years before you get there mm-hmm. that's what the important thing is having to starve is is irrelevant you know mm-hmm. that's like uh, that's like having a good round of golf it wasn't that one day it was the years of golf you played to get you to that good round so mm-hmm. um I, I really um i suppose it, at that stage i, I kind of just done the opposite i wrote down so how the decision was i wrote down everything bon Appetit was and i said well what i want cleaver to be and it's pretty much opposite so I wanted it to be a fun place. We played really loud house music. It was really, it was inexpensive. Like the dishes were between six and 13 euros a dish. Um, I wanted people to have just best quality food they could possibly eat and the best quality service. But why over Why do you price yourself out of market? You know? And I felt that's what um, the world of fine dining chefs do. Um, the best chefs, they, they, ego driven. Of course it is mm-hmm. that you, you, you know, you, I decide the prices but I was deciding prices that were, you know, putting ninety percent of the population couldn't afford to go there. So I decided to go the opposite way and that's where Cleaver came. So Great, and then once Cleaver was a success, well, then that was when I realised, okay, this Michelin world isn't for me anymore. It mm-hmm. uh, gave me the confidence to make the leap I needed to make.
1: So you more of the mainstream restaurants?
0: Yeah, just yeah. more mainstream every every day restaurant. Um, mm-hmm. Food can still be amazing in these but it's to do with how comfortable we are. And uh, I suppose I wanted to, I wanted to get aim to the, to the population like well why am i targeting 0.1 percent of the population i want to go over 99.9 percent of the population mm. you know why am i competing against myself why do you learn to cook for 20 years at an extremely high level and then selling you know 100 euro for a tasting menu that people aren't willing to can't afford or aren't willing to afford and also in stuffy stiff environments that isn't conducive to a good time mm. so um, it doesn't have to be like that it doesn't oh, have to be like that. That was my fault. I, I created that here at Bon Appetit when we first opened. Nobody asked me to, you know, have a footstool for the ladies' handbag, but I did. Mm. <laughs> you know, right. so it, it's, uh, So you just learn these things, you know.
1: And you, do you think that sometimes, you know, particularly in the likes of these fine-dine restaurants, that there is a little bit of food snobbery, is it? Food yeah, food? of course, of course,
0: of course. And that, that also, you know, that was a thing for me. Oh, I, I consider myself a, an everyday kind of person. I keep the to myself. Um food snobbery is 100% exactly what it is um, people come in with I think people are uncomfortable so I think it, you, you've two kinds of people you've one who really appreciate going to fine dining restaurants and love the food and are just blown away by it and are into every single bit and they're coming in with a really positive mindset and just to enjoy it and it's a treat it's Mm -hmm. always a treat and it's always a special occasion you don't just go to a Michelin star restaurant on a Tuesday for no reason you know Mm -hmm. one because you're not willing to spend that money Um, and two the the environment isn't usually conducive to casual midweek dining Mm -hmm. Um, but then there's the other kind of person who I think you know go but go with kind of a little bit of not begrudgery but they don't know how to behave in that environment so you have a choice you can be appreciative and think this is amazing and eyes open and be willing to be impressed or you can go the other way you can criticize everything you can look at the type of water to serve and go oh my god they serve Tipperary. i was expecting San pellegrino or you know they, they just people can go and they do go because I've, I've lived this for 10 years they go to extreme negative levels like you know you'd get some crazy complaints and stuff that you kind of just go god and the world like is that really important is it really important we use tea bags instead of tea leaves and you know, that's the reason you're never coming back to the restaurant. And that was what one lady told me one day. Uh loved every part of the meal, service, experience, everything, but was never coming back because we use tea leaves instead or tea bags instead of tea leaves. And I just didn't like being around ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what you're allowed, Call? Yeah, arseholes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um it's just not me. Just come and Ooh. enjoy it. And so it was that kind of environment. I it it's yeah, it just wasn't me. Ooh. So these are the kind of things. A food snobbery, and that's also backed up then by, you know journos get involved, and the food critics at the time, we're going back now 20 years ago, was very elitist and very snobbery, you know. Mm. And unless you were white linen and this type of crockery and this redell wine glasses and da-da-da, you you weren't you wasn't considered a good restaurant.
1: But the reality was that the, the food writer could close your business down really. Yeah, he? at the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well power. They they had absolutely huge power. They had really had huge power. And you think back in the day, um, you know rest, I'm sure restaurants did I, I'm blessed back when I came back to Ireland which was 2003 and I opened Mint Restaurant um, the, you know the food writers at that stage were still pretty pretty big um, I didn't have any bad reviews um, at the start but equally when I had good reviews the thing is you don't know right You that's the reality of it. you don't know like the, 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 where this power came from I don't know but there was never I had amazing reviews did I see an increase in custom no Nothing that I could actually put my finger on and say, God, you know, we had a great review last Saturday. We're up 20% next week. That, that was that not never happen. Mm-hmm. We, we maintained the same. It never really changed. Um, and equally then, over the years, yes, absolutely, I got a couple of bad reviews, especially after a certain period of my life when I think uh, the food journals turned on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had maybe myself to blame. But um, I had some bad reviews. Did it make any difference to the business? Absolutely not none either way but uh i suppose compounding of what it is it's, i think it's to do with um at the time going back years ago when there was no social media when there was no google reviews when there was no, for somebody to criticize you was a very rare thing nowadays you're criticized you know if you serve 100 people in a week
1: instantaneously
0: you, yeah yeah instantaneously and, and you'll have you'll have 50 bits of feedback whether positive so they kind of roll now but beforehand it was very personal because it was a real and you're in the paper it was like national shame nearly and, and you know when you think when people put their livelihoods they're working as hard as they can and whatever they are and you could be a mechanic listening to this you could be imagine you're spending all your money your family a home you're going to your normal life and you're you're busting your ass as much as you can and someone writes in the newspaper that the service you've done on the car was substandard. And a real threat to your livelihood, your career, and how personal that is and how, how people could perceive that to be. And that's what it was back then, you know. Uh, I, I,
1: I always wondered how many of those people that wrote those type of reviews actually worked in the kitchen
0: yeah yeah i'd say very little well you know well i think we all know very little and that's still to this day still to this day the food now the food bloggers are um, just still the same restaurant critics are still writing in restaurant newspapers you know they're not coming from any point of of very few i don't know to be very honest i, I literally as i sit here today i cannot tell you the names of a single food writer in a single newspaper I don't know their names. I don't read them. I, ha- and I haven't read them for 10 years now. But I used to know all the old school guys back in the day. I knew all their names. But I don't know who's doing them now. But am I not wrong? They're just journalists that work from one section of the newspaper. And then I am writing this. They just work one section of the newspaper. And then an opening comes up. And then they're offered, well, who's going to fill this slot? And ex-journalist just gets the job. And their knowledge of food is the same as my own parents. You know, mm-hmm. Just people who go to restaurants occasionally who've never worked in a restaurant actually matter of fact my own parents would have be way more qualified to do uh, food critics now because mm. they've with me involved in the restaurants mm. they've eaten in some of the best restaurants in the world and we eat out all the time mm. um, but yeah so i suppose it's a uh, it's it's just a nutter it's just a and and hopefully uh, my peers take these reviews now as just the same as the Google review and the Instagram review or the Facebook message—it's just one person's opinion um, that didn't like the meal for whatever reason, and you should take that seriously because it's yeah. one person's opinion.
1: And it's always a bit like awards. I mean, I think the best reward you will get is a customer back the second time and third time. That's the best reward you get, isn't it?
0: Yeah, of course. Well, it's the only reward you should really care about, you know, because um, at the end of the day, you can have all the awards you want. I had one. It was called a Michelin star, yeah. mm-hmm. and we're serving very few people. You know, so um, what is an award if your restaurant isn't busy? Mm-hmm. It, it's worthless to you. So um, have thousands of people want to come into your restaurant and have no awards is way better than having all the awards in the world and an empty restaurant. Mm-hmm. So, um,
1: so you don't really chase the awards now, do you?
0: No, I haven't been involved in any awards in any shape or form for God, well over a decade. Um, it's not on my radar at all. I don't even know when they're going to be on. Um, it's just not something that I'm involved with or, or have any interest in. And to be honest, never had. Um, never had. I think we met for the first time. Mm-hmm. I can tell you when we met. We met for the first time in 2004 mm-hmm. or maybe 2003 Three. Yeah. because um, Mint had just opened. Yeah. And I met you in... I can't remember what county it was, yeah. but uh, the owners of Mint at the time, um, I was the head chef, and it, we were nominated for Best New Restaurant and Best New Chef, um, and we went to that awards, Ooh. and I think I was sitting beside you, yeah, yeah. and that's where we met, um, and since then, I've probably been to maybe four awards ceremonies since then, um, but I haven't in well over a decade. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well over decades. I just, I just don't believe. I don't, I don't agree with it. That's really what it is. Morally, I don't agree mm-hmm. with. I don't agree with uh, what it's all about. But I equally now, how naivety it was at the time. Now, as a businessman, mm-hmm. I understand what they're all about. You know, they're all about raising money for whoever the awards company is hosting mm-hmm. them. You know, if food and wine, not even know if food mine's still ting is it still ting? Is it closed down I think, no, it's, I think it's goal, is yeah. it still going? I thought it was sold. Um, but I remember they used to host it. But it was about making money for the magazines, and promoting the magazines, and promoting them. And it's not about promoting who the best chef is in the country. But at the time when you're a chef, you really take that, you know, and you take that very personally, you know. Uh, but no, it's just not for me yeah. Let people do it. Some more powerful.
1: Now talking about staff and that, you know, you you know, like obviously you're very vocal and very very straight straight-talker. How do you get on with your staff?
0: Um. Very well. I think. Um, I wonder what my staff think. Uh, <laughs> very well. Now listen, I've, I have a lot of people now working mm. in the group. You know, we, we're over 200 employees, um, which is great. So, uh, with that, uh, and because restaurant hospitality is always being transient, like, you, mm. you, you, we could have three or four new starters, maybe five new starters every week, and we could have five people leave every week because, you know, they're coming in, they're students, they're working part-time, kitchen porters are changing all the time, people don't show up. It's the nature of the business. So, I used to, and it's a pity, I used to know every single person. Um, I'd be lying today if I said I knew every single person. I'd know all the names, but names to faces, because I'd see a name on the payroll. Mm-hmm. So I'd know the names and I'd know they work at this restaurant, but I mightn't have necessarily met them at the time. And then I'd go in three weeks later and they're not there they're gone they've already left so um, but no I get on great the core team my core team hasn't changed um, and I think that's testament like so all the the main senior management team um, and most of the managers I have and all the restaurants we do a very very little um, staff turnover mm-hmm. so I think that speaks volumes but uh, I, I now have a, a different role in the company you know um, the senior management team deal directly with all the in-house head chefs and, and restaurant managers um so yeah but I I would imagine that I I would say they would all speak highly of me because I've mm-hmm. never done anything for that not to be the case Right. John. not now no. <laughs> Ask me 10 years it's ago and fine, I would have told you a very different story you yeah, know different. yeah absolutely it was different it was different you know I was a, I I was a different person
1: would well, that be down to somewhat of immaturity of, not from the business would it been some of that
0: yeah of course um, ego immaturity um, not knowing how to conduct yourself um, I suppose lashing out at other people due to internal frustrations uh, wanting things to be a certain way and not being able to convey that sit down and have a conversation and say this is, where, this is what I want this is why I want it and try to explain and sit down with someone instead I just bark and shout when I was overwhelmed um and I don't regret any of it Mm. I don't regret any of it Um, I I don't think regrets regrets aren't part of my life Um, that's the person I was back then and the person I am now is the person I am now Um, Mm. so it's all a journey Um, I don't regret it Um, but looking back on it Mm. it's funny Mm. I was clueless I hadn't Mm. a clue I'd done
1: a lot of stuff I shouldn't have done Um, but that's life yeah yeah yeah. but on the other side on the flip side of that there's a very charitable party isn't there? you do a lot for charities
0: um, yeah like uh, I, yeah we try yeah um, so I think that's important um, I do think that's important and, and um, we, we do stuff for charity but uh, do you know what? i I seen, a, I seen a TV show mm. about 15 years ago and it really struck with me and it was um, it was a show called The Secret Millionaire do you mm, remember that show yeah now I'm saying again 15 years ago it was a long long time ago and I remember watching the show one time, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was Newcastle, and there was a guy in it, and he was a, a an old guy, and uh, he was like really old, like he was well into his eighties, and he'd an awful lot of things wrong with him medically. He he was really really poor and blah blah. And he was the guy, whoever he was, was uh, put on to him, and, and uh, you know he met him, and at the end, then he wrote the check. Really. This man, I think he was a lifelong Newcastle supporter and he'd never been to a Newcastle game and all this sort of stuff because mm-hmm. he couldn't afford to go and he would no TV because he mm-hmm. couldn't afford the TV, TV. It was really like desolate situation. Like it really was like, God, the fella had nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he had cancer, he'd, he was blind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just, it was just you, you couldn't write this. and uh, He was getting £34 a week is all he had to live off. So at the end, when your man was writing him the cheque, you know, to say, oh, I'm the secret millionaire and I'm going to write you a cheque of 10 grand and he bought him a season ticket. And it was a lovely story. Mm. Uh, he goes, you know, you live off 34 euros or pounds a week. And he goes, no, I don't. I've only got 28. And he says, no, no, you've 34. He goes, I don't. i 28. And he goes, how are you 28? He goes, because I give six euro or pound to this charity every week, you know, And the seeker in there was just floored. He sort of went, what do you mean? He goes, you've only 34 and you give six away. He goes, I didn't know that. I never knew that. Like, how did I not know that? And he goes, why would you know that? You don't do charity to tell everybody about it. And I just thought, boom, drop the mic moment. Because the whole premise of the whole show was about this lad telling (laughs) the world he's giving away the money. And it just really struck me. So, um, yeah, like, yeah, I support charity. Um, We do various initiatives every year. um, Probably in the last... Three years we've given maybe fifty grand just given okay. Ukraine now um yeah. I think the last two months about seventeen thousand yeah. uh ten thousand and just under ten thousand nine thousand something in april and, yeah. and may it's about seven or eight thousand so um do cancer campaigns children 's campaigns so every year we do something I think that's important that's yeah. not just important for life and humanity it's also important for i think uh, as a company and as a group to to give back you know um and give back in a real way not just talk about it you know actually do it um, because everyone wants to be involved with, with everyone I think people are 99% positive and uh, I think the more you give back the more you get you know Karma. yeah yeah I do I do and, and the only you get you realise life is uh, life is hard and life is difficult and uh, mm. if you're in a situation where you can't help people I think you should so yeah we try to do what I can right.
1: and when you look when you look at the industry and where it's come to and um, Obviously, there are massive challenges in it at the moment. We all know about those. You know, what's your own view of it? Do you think that we can recover? Yeah, in terms of e- economically? Well, economically and also from a staff and potential, how are you know, per- yeah. efficient? How we I going think economically, that?
0: I think economically, um, I can only speak for, for where I know, mm-hmm. okay? And I'm sure there's places around the country that maybe haven't come back. I don't know, right? Um, so, unfortunately, I'll just have to... Forget about that. I tell you what, I do know. I do know Dublin is back to, to where it was. Um, there's no real difference. Um, tiny bit down midweek, like a tiny bit. Like you're probably talking 10%. But even now, the corporates are starting to come back. We're starting to see little bits now of corporate entertainment come back in. And corporate entertainment can just mean a table of 10 work colleagues are now going out together because we are now allowed to go out together. But there's still people working at home still. So it's not the same in the city centres. Um, out in suburbia here in Malahide, where I am. Um, that's gone back to where it was. Um, meaning during COVID, it actually, during the, the the lockdown parts the last six months where people were working at home, actually the community restaurants done better because there was no one going into the city centres. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've done a little bit, but that's now balanced out again. So city mm-hmm. centres have picked up again. Suburbia has dropped again. I uh, can see down in Galway, footfall is starting mm-hmm. to come back. Tourism is definitely back and we can see that's growing on a weekly mm-hmm. basis. So I think that's all positive. Um, employment I think that'll be a couple of years and that'll be a couple of years um, because it'll take a couple of years for people to forget and what I mean by people to forget people in the hospitality to forget the hospitality is a tough tough industry and new people will come in um, I suppose not because what's happened I think what happened is is it's always been a tough industry COVID gave people an opportunity to sit back and look at their life Um, to question, you know, God, I I never had a weekend off. If you're working in hospital, you never had a weekend off. You never had this off. And you got to realize, you know, there is another way to live life. Um, And you you may have a better social life and and you may have, depending on what you do in hospitality, you know, you, you might be able to get equal money working in a different industry but with the added advantage of a better social life. And I think that was the, that's the main thing that's actually happening. I, I don't think it's a, you know, oh, all the tourists are gone home or all the foreigners are gone home mm-hmm. again. I don't think it's that. I think it's just uh, people, you know, and mental health was a huge thing. Um huge thing and really affected an awful lot of people um an awful lot of my own staff and an awful lot of just people here in the industry it really affected people badly just being left at home and i think the hospitality industry um like every industry i don't, well i only want to know a lot of a lot of restaurants abandoned their staff you know um no contacts and i know loads i know loads of i've, I've, I've had loads of people come looking for work for that reason that they just locked down closed, took the government grants, as they're entitled to take the government grants, nothing wrong with that, but didn't communicate with their staff, didn't look after them, didn't keep them going. Um, and as a result then, when they reopened, hey, come on, let's go back to work. They were told in no uncertain terms to sling your hook. I'm never coming back to work with you. Um, so I think that's really what happened. I think that the good operators and the ones who looked out for their staff retained their staff. Um, and I think the other ones didn't.
1: Mm-hmm. And you think that given that, that, that lesson... That the industry must reevaluate how it employs people and how they look after them during the working time or do they need to change the work structures?
0: Yeah, like it's 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 a, yes is the answer. Yes, they need to the change it. But um I don't see how it's possible at the moment. Okay, because in the end of the day it would be absolutely fantastic if you know you could if you were a chef and, and as a, as a chef, if you're a chef that you'd only work two or three nights a week. But then you could work maybe three days and two nights or something like that. You know what I mean? But for that to happen, you have to work in a restaurant where it's actually busy during the lunchtime and dinner time, And that's not the case. You're either one or the other. You're either a daytime restaurant or cafe or you're a nighttime business. There's very few who transcend between really busy during the day and really... So we need all the staff at nighttime. And you need all the staff at times that people are going out, which is all the antisocial hours. So that's never going to change. Should chefs... And I I am singling out chefs here as opposed to front of house members... Should they be paid more money? 100 percent. It's an industry that's been underpaid since it began, as far as I'm aware. Um, it's always underpaid. Um, and the only way to pay the guys enough is to put your prices up, and to put your prices up, you won't have any customers. So it's this catch22, but like to be, a, let's say you're a 40-year-old chef, you know you've cooked for 20 years. In any other industry with 20 years experience, you'd be on some serious money. Um, That's not the case in kitchens because there's a cap that you can only pay. Like a lot of industries, there's a cap. You can't go over a certain cap, pay cap. So that's hard. So should there be anti-social bonuses? Should there be, you know, yeah, there should. But I'm genuinely trying to figure out how this can be done. But I, I really don't know. Mm-hmm. um i looked at the whole minimum wage and and, and living wage you know the, the, but you you just can't you can't the reality is it doesn't stack mm-hmm. there's no there's no money at the end of the year to justify you know if you paid all your part-time staff which in hospitality would be um the majority of your staff you know um the living wage you'd, you'd be bust which is twelve fifty or something mm-hmm. like that isn't it? um so yeah i just think the industry itself um Needs look if you look at your European model and even in the UK, um, when you go to restaurants, but mainly mainland Europe, your starters are the same prices as your main courses. You go you into a restaurant, you'll have an 18 euro starter, but you'll have an 18 euro main course too. Over here, starters are seven and eight and nine, and it, it doesn't stack the cost to make a starter versus the cost to make a main course. The difference is very subtle, you know, apart from if you're putting a fillet steak on a menu, which is a big item, but outside of that, the difference might be one euro in terms of the build cost to produce mm-hmm. that dish. But one dish you're selling for 10 euros or 8 euros. It's
1: almost like a lost leader.
0: A lost leader, yeah, yeah, a lost leader. So mm-hmm. there's all these things. Dessert, another one, a great one. Like how, much, how much is a dessert, you know? If, if I said brought to a restaurant a dessert was 6 quid, you go, oh, that's kind of cheap. If the dessert was 10 euro, that's very expensive. So, like, where's the sweet point? Is it 8 euro? The cost of dessert. You're better off not selling desserts now people can listen and say don't but that's not what the restaurant experience is you have to but you'd be better off just selling the main course a drink get out turn your table in 30 minutes because having someone sit there with a dessert a couple sharing one dessert and drinking a tea and coffee for a tenner and sitting at the table for an extra 40 minutes complete waste of time you know it wouldn't even be the wage cost of the waiter serving them so um, yeah it's, it's, it's a strange one it's right, but um, I can't see how it can be fixed yeah you,
1: meant, you mentioned the government and the, the subsidies that they'll support to, to, the, to give the industry during the COVID do you think that the government appreciate or understand tourism
0: I'd have to say they <laughs> like I'm not I don't know what goes on I'd have to sort of appreciate it of course they know financially what tourism brings in um, do they appreciate I think they were in an awkward situation they were in a horrible situation. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, all the people who work in the government are no different than you and I and anyone else in the world. They're just normal human beings trying to navigate the way to something they have no idea what they're doing. Um, because how would they know? How would Hal Martin and Leo Radker have know anything about COVID more than we do? You know. Um, so it was a very, very hard task. Was the restaurant industry kind of scapegoated? I suppose the hospitality industry, scapegoat, I suppose the hospitality industry is the area where people socialise. So it's where do people gather is in the hospitality sector. That's the straight one. Schools were another one. So when push comes to shove as a parent, should they have closed the schools versus hospitality? Absolutely not. They made the right decision. They should have kept the schools open and closed hospitality. They it was it was They couldn't win they couldn't win because you had to stop people from gathering and that's how you stop and yes people are going to go to houses but but that was a personal choice people go to houses you know what I mean they, they didn't have to do that that's not the government's fault that people had house parties mm-hmm. that's the, the people who were irresponsible who had the house parties that's not the government's fault so it was a catch 22 I think they made the right calls and I think they supported the hospitality industry very well mm-hmm. I think they done the best they could I think mm-hmm. if you compare it to the rest of Europe I think they the supports they put out were even better in Europe. And even with the employees for us, the EWS guest scheme. Um, but then it comes down to I suppose the individual employer you're working for. That's the thing. So mm. um, but I think uh, they've done the best they could in a horrible situation. Okay.
1: And do you think there should be a department of tourism? As against the tourism being put into a load of other departments, you know, with, with like the The current minister has so many briefs to look after like You know, media, arts, etc. Yeah, well, listen, If I think if anyone is
0: tasked with one job and one job only, they're generally going to do it better, aren't they? Like, Mm. again, you know, how many balls can you juggle at any one time? Mm. You know, if your job is just to juggle one ball, you'd be pretty good at it. So Mm -hmm. for that reason, of course, there's a dedicated tourism department. Well, it can only benefit. But Mm. um, with anything, it seems to be, with Mm. politics and government in this country, it's just it's so much red tape and anything nothing can get over the line um, it's frustrating you know nothing can get over the line without fecking referendums and someone has an opinion and uh, yeah it would be it's an interesting one isn't it if it was private you know, yeah. if a country was run privately who knows what would happen yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and just to, to maybe look at education like you, you you left school you had your you had your leave and start um, do you think that our educators the people who you know are looking after young people that they understand Hospitality, do, they, do you think that they, they know about it? Um, all I can say in on that one is I suppose, as a career, uh, as a career, yeah,
0: as a career, yeah. Um, <coughs> there is a lot of people interested in hospitality and going into hospitality, that mm. still happens. I think the attendance levels going into um catering colleges, mm. um, hospitality, whatever they may be around the country, I'm sure is still the same as it always was. So I'm sure it's that it's quite low at the minute. Is it quite mm. low? Okay, mm. um, well, the minute after, yeah, I'm not surprised after this mm. turnaround, mm. yeah, um. There would have been a lot of dropouts, I'd say, more so than anything else. But over the years, all I can say is that um, the students that come out, I know the students that go in, to go in a first year, very few of them actually come out and go into working in the industry um, full-time. Um, and the ones that do come out don't really have, I, have, I, I don't see the benefit. Mm-hmm. I don't see, I've, never, I've never come across um, anyone who's come out of third-level catering college as a qualified chef that has actually benefited them. Um. So during their time when you're in catering college, you, you are working part time as a chef. You know mm-hmm. that's because you have to get by and you have to earn money. Um. Does the has the curriculum made any difference to their ability? I don't believe so. Their part time job wherever they worked was where they were. And I'm meaning if if you if you have a a young lad who went to college or a young girl who went to college and is working in Patrick Ebo's versus a young girl a guy who went to college is working the local coffee shop guess which one is the best when they come out of college. It's certainly not the one who worked in the coffee shop. Mm-hmm. So um, is there any point of going into catering college to become a chef? My opinion is no.
1: So how what should it be? Should it be an apprenticeship? Yes,
0: you should, an apprenticeship. Just um, And does it have to be an actual government qualified or Falch Ireland approved apprenticeship? No, it doesn't have to be that either. Remember years ago, when bar you had to be an apprentice, do a four year apprenticeship to be a barman. Mm-hmm. You have to go and you do first year, second year, third year, fourth year to be a barman. When you think back now, what absolute horseshit that is to, to apprenticeship to be a barman. This exact same way. Do you need an apprenticeship to be a chef? Absolutely not. It's equal. You just have to go into a kitchen, like the way you go into a bar, and learn how to cook. And the senior people in that restaurant are going to teach you how to do it. And if you know how to make mashed potato in one restaurant, You'll go to the next restaurant and they'll make mashed potato their way. So what you've learned in the restaurant before is irrelevant. So what you learn in college is irrelevant. College are teaching you dated curriculum from uh, La Rousse Gastronomique and, you know, old French stuff of let's make the seven different sauces. and who, who cares if you know what a beef stuffed olive is? and I, it's, it's not relevant. You, mm-hmm. I didn't go to Catering College. You can just learn on the job. You just learn as you're going along. cooking.
1: And you, like to, you think that's the best way to learn, do you? Yeah,
0: yeah. If you want to be a chef, just go to a good restaurant. This is my advice to anyone out there who wants to be a chef. You know, if you want to be a chef, get yourself a job in a good restaurant. Not just a restaurant. A good restaurant that's producing good food. The reason why that is more important. One, just because you're going to learn. But the people working in that restaurant are going to be professionally minded and focused mm-hmm. those working in a, a in let's call it a not so good restaurant if you really wanted to be a good chef would you be working in a not so good restaurant like anything mm-hmm. else you know if you wanted to yeah it's it's you, you you seek out the best in, in anything so go to work in a good restaurant uh, learn as much as you can you be surrounded by like-minded people and you will learn in a community and that's what it was and that's that's what i think it is so
1: you think that could be the saviour, that could be the, the, the conduit to keep a, a flow of chefs available in the country?
0: Yeah, because equally then you're going straight into the workplace, you're getting paid straight away, mm-hmm. you know. And also when you go into you go into third level and you come out as a qualified chef from um, whatever catering college it is, and you walk into the restaurant, I have never, ever, ever, and no one I know has, has ever asked anyone, are they qualified chef or not? Never once have I seen any documents to support that or have I ever asked to see it. It's not relevant. You come in, you do a trial. If you have a job as a commie chef, you give them a job as a commie chef and you can afford to pay them whenever the restaurant can afford to pay them. There's no structure that you come out, oh, I'm finished, I'm, I'm fully qualified chef after four years of training in college. I'm going to qualify for X amount of money. That's not the case. So you just start off at the bottom anyway. So you may as well start off at the bottom at 18 as opposed to starting off at the bottom at 22.
1: So... Be Bet be better for them.
0: Better for them. You will learn more. You you know, you, you you're you're open to more ideas. You'll also be earning money while you're doing it. But you're hundred percent gonna be better when you're twenty two years of age with four years full time professional experience behind you than you are after coming out of college with a part time
1: job. Okay. When you look at we say the the food that we have in this island, how would you rate Irish food and the, the the supply of food, like the provenance of food is it good here?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um like I'm not one of the and I've never been um let's say the champion of food provenance um mm. as a chef my belief is put any food in front of me and it's my job to be able to make it taste nice whether that's those carrots come from kenya or come from a farm 20 meters up the road from me um that's never been my bag that's never been something that i've championed and you know people see because you're a chef you should be championed local irish greens i understand the economics of it all but um there's absolutely amazing quality produce in Ireland, but there's also amazing quality produce in every country in the world. Right. So um, I suppose it's just what's, what's your goal at the end of the day, you know? Mm-hmm. Is, is, so that, there is people out there who just go on about this um, and champion provenance and champion this and champion that. For me, my job was always um, to cook you and Anyone who steps in this door, the best possible meal I could possibly cook them. And regardless of where that carrots came from, I just cooked them the best carrots I could find. Mm-hmm. And if that came from Kenya or it came from Ireland, I bought the best. Mm-hmm. I didn't uh, subscribe to that. Uh, that's just not me.
1: How how would you rate Irish produce though? Would you rate it as one of the better produce Do you think we be better produce than other countries?
0: No, <laughs> I'm not supposed to say that. But no, I don't think it's. I don't. I think it's. As I said, yeah, I think like I'm married subjective. to. A, yeah, it's subjective. I'm married to a French one. If you yes. ask anyone in the UK, what's the best produce in the world, they're going to say UK. If you ask anyone in Ireland, they're going to say Ireland. If you ask anyone in France, going to say France. If you ask anyone in Germany, going to say German. Spanish, Dutch, you know. So all our vegetables and fruit that 99.9 percent of all the restaurants in this country comes from Holland or Spain we all buy off the same suppliers there's very little Irish stuff going around in circulation, some items but most of the stuff isn't, um, a lot of our meat obviously is, is Irish based but do I think it's better, I think it's great, I think it's brilliant, uh, if I have two products equal I will support Irish, if the two products aren't equal I won't necessarily support Irish, I'm in a business um, so but yeah I think the project is amazing but I, I'm not naive to think it's, 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 do you know what it is I bet you the chipper beside your house is a great chipper. Mm-hmm. And the chipper beside my house is a great chipper, the best chipper. And the local Chinese takeaway beside my house is the best Chinese takeaway. But the one beside your house is also the best Chinese takeaway. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. So, as you say, subjective. Yeah, 100%. Yeah.
1: So tell me just to wrap it up, you're obviously now married, settled, family. Yeah. yeah, So,
0: Two great kids, 17, Evan, 17, and a little girl, Kimmy, 12. Right, right. So, uh, yeah, it's been a... Uh, it's been a a long time I'm a long time uh, in the restaurant game now yeah. like you know so
1: you think back to those days of manly engineering and what you have yeah. today could you have envisaged what you've achieved
0: no no um I, I never I never looked forward you know like that um I I had a very clear goal of what I wanted to do in my life you know I, I knew that from a very early age I knew um I knew I wanted to win a Michelin star in cooking. I knew that was very important for me. I knew the age I wanted to be a head chef. Uh, I knew the age I wanted to have my own restaurant. That was all. I knew all that when I was 21. I remember telling a friend of mine, standing on a common Street, telling the story. Um, so I had all these targets in my head. Where I got them from, I don't know. Um, did I just pull them out of the air? I don't know. But I believed in them. Um, and I believe when you set a goal, it's easy, much easier to achieve it than if you're just... Going aimlessly. So um, I hit all those targets along the way. I achieved everything that I wanted to achieve. Um, but I didn't think past them kind of things, you know. Um, I wanted to be a Michelin star chef. I never I never thought about being a two Michelin star chef or a three Michelin star chef. Um and then when I came to when I decided to walk away from the world of Michelin and get into the regular everyday dining, middle road dining, well then I said, Well, I wanted to be the best at that, you know? Um, and what is the best at that? It's no longer the best food in the world because that's what Michelin is is about the best food in the world it's about I want to have successful happy restaurants where people come and enjoy themselves and I realised that is the so that's what kind of got me excited about it then just building restaurants I like building new restaurants I like teams I like finding a site and then analysing what would work well in that site And I think the as a group, our ability to change is our strength, is, is the number one strength. We, we're not afraid of failure. Um, we, I could tr- open, like, I opened Pink in South William Street, you know. If Pink didn't work out, it, it, would, it would be, I'll give it a while, I'll try it, and I'll change it. I'll just pull the sign down, I'll change it. I'm going to be a Chinese there next year, you know. Ooh. So, um, again, I think kind of I've learned that over time. Um, restaurants, not all restaurants work in all locations, and it may be nothing to do with the quality of the food or the price of the service. It's just the wrong restaurant, and the wrong. You have to recognize that. And you have to leave your ego at the door. And when I walked away from Michelin, I, I left my ego at the door. Um, so I said, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it fully and completely. And I think that's been a great trend, you know.
1: So you're mellowed.
0: Yeah, yeah. In some ways, mellowed. In some ways, mellowed. But um, not in other ways. Yeah, it's just my priorities have shifted. Okay.
1: My priorities, and have right. you any plans for any new restaurants? Are you always looking around?
0: Or? Yeah, like I don't have any plans at the moment for any new restaurants. Mm. But yes, I'm always looking around. Like I've got yeah. as as I'm talking, I don't have any plans for it. But yeah, equally, I'm looking at a couple of things mm. at the same time. Mm. Things just come around, and when I come around for here or something, I'll, I'll look at it, mm. and then I'll sort of analyse and say, am I interested in pursuing this or am I not? So um, who knows? We're now June 2022. Will I have another restaurant or two restaurants by July 2023? Mm-hmm. Possibly. Uh, possibly, yeah. yeah. I wouldn't I would say no. Uh, but equally, if I don't, it doesn't concern me either. I'll do what's right. What I believe to be right. Um, mm-hmm. I just hope to God that uh, it is right.
1: And just to wrap up on it, would you use much technology in your, in your kitchens? Like, Would technology play a big part in your ovens and coopers and all that sort of stuff?
0: Not in terms of uh, in ovens and uh, mm-hmm. um, no, no, not in, not in an uh, actual the physical um, mm-hmm. backbone of the kitchen. Mm-hmm. No, all just and we don't use any technology.
1: Mm-hmm. um Do you see that that as something that might come into play? To what level when you say technology? Well, you can have a oven that can be preset to cook things at a certain way.
0: Well, I suppose we all do that. um, Mm. And we've always done that. You know, Mm. like slow cooking effectively and things like that. But it's never used for service times. Mm. You know what I mean? Service times is quick cooking Mm. on the spot, instant. Mm. But but yeah, do we slow cook things overnight? Absolutely. We do all that. We've always done it. But in terms of technology, is that any different? No. We have water baths. um, That's about as exotic as it gets um i used to use them once upon a time for loads of stuff back in the Michelin days now we now i don't i just use them for particular items some items are just absolutely infinitely better out of a water bath than they are out of conventional cooking so uh if it makes sense and it's logical to use it we use it uh, yeah. and if it isn't we don't
1: yeah yeah so they say watch this space
0: yeah 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 so um at the moment as i did we're all Team's happy. The restaurants are doing well. Um, you can't win them all. We're always renovating and always changing and always reinvesting back into the restaurants um, and always just looking to make people happier. That's really it. And, um, why do people be... That's the thing. What makes people happy when they come to a restaurant? Um, that, I think the answer to that question changes every day depending on the mood of the person walking in. So um, it's an evolving, exciting industry if you want to get into it in detail and look at it and analyze it and and get caught up in it but you can also sit back and just go oh just cooking food putting on a plate and serving with people Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's the mistake (laughs) all the people who open the new restaurant the first restaurant for the first time because they think they're great chefs or they're you know they Mm -hmm. like a little coffee shop and i make a great lasagna that's why the failure rate is so high in the first year you know you have to be into the detail you have to ask why all the time and be willing to change all the time
1: um, or it doesn't work a big thanks Oliver Dunn for joining us at the chef table you can follow and subscribe to our channels with all our podcasts available on our website and on Spotify and YouTube bye for now